Good morning, everyone. And Happy New Year on this first Lord's Day of 2018. I know it's a little bit anticlimactic as we've already had a week of New Year's. But truly, with each passing year and with each new year, we are reminded of the faithfulness of God and the fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I can think of no better way than to begin our new year together on this Lord's Day by opening up God's word and hearing God speak to us. So if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, we will be reading verses 1 through 5. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, that is the prayer of our hearts this morning, that you would speak, O Lord, that you would speak, that it would not be the voice of a man, but the voice of God, not the voice of a preacher, but the voice of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we this morning, with the eyes of our hearts, see the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, and may you remind us of the glories which await us and the hope that we have. We pray all these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. In 1952, a young woman named Florence Chadwick stepped off the shore of Catalina Island in an attempt to swim to California 26 miles away. It was a very foggy day, which made it difficult to see, but Florence tried to complete the swim anyway. And throughout the swim, she was surrounded by small boats which would ward off sharks and would help her if she became tired. And one of these boats was her mother, who kept telling Florence to press on, to keep going, to swim hard. Well, after about 16 hours of swimming, as the thickness of the fog grew, Florence began to doubt that she could make it. She said to her mom, Mom, pull me out of the water. I can't do it. Pull me out of the water. And her mother finally gave in. Sadly, at that moment, Florence realized she was less than half a mile away from the shore. She said at a news conference the next day, 
All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months after that failed day in 1952, Florence tried again. It was the same grueling 26-mile swim ahead of her, and on top of that, the same thick fog set in. But this time, Florence made it. She made it. She completed the swim 26 miles. Why? What was the difference? She said this time she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind as she swam. She saw the shore and she made it. Perspective makes all the difference. If you can see the finish line, you will behave very differently than if you couldn't see the finish line. If you can tell where you are going, that will affect your life right here, right now. If you know your final destination tomorrow, that will affect your life today. At the heart of every Christian is a person who longs to be with God, who longs to be without sin. And so it is. We, as the people of God, should have a holy preoccupation with heaven. Jonathan Edwards said about heaven, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? In John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, one pilgrim asks another on the road to the celestial city, when do you find yourself in the most wholesome and most vigorous spiritual state? And the other pilgrim replies, when I think of the place to which I am going. Thinking of the place to which you are going puts you in the most wholesome and most vigorous spiritual state. So Christian, are you feeling downtrodden, weary, dejected? Are you tired of fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil? Think of heaven. Rejoice in heaven. Bask in the glories of heaven. Brothers and sisters, we must keep close to the reviving fires of our heavenly home. It is one of the most precious, most powerful ways to keep our Christian affections red hot. But all this begs the question, if everyone is looking for heaven, what is heaven really like? It is sad that for something that is so sought after and so pursued, there is so little that is known about it, even in the church. How many sermons are preached on the fires of hell which leave out the glories of heaven? How many sermons focus on the eternal state of the unbeliever and neglect the eternal state of the believer? It will take us an eternity to grasp, but for this morning, I'd like to just get a glimpse. The main theme of the passage before us is found in the precious words of verse 5, where God says, Behold, I am making all things new. The word new appears nine times in the book of Revelation, and four of those times occur in these five verses alone. Newness is the theme. Newness is the main point of this passage. But why? Why is God making all things new? Because of the curse, because of sin, 
because of the fall. Heaven is a reversal of the curse. If you read your Bible carefully, you will notice the unmistakable parallel between the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. The unmistakable parallel between the first few chapters of Genesis and the last few chapters of Revelation. And it's not surprising to see the themes of the Old Testament in Revelation. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, at least 278 of them are allusions to the Old Testament. That's 70% of the entire book. 70% of the entire book of Revelation is an allusion, a reference, an echo, a quotation of the Old Testament. Standard Greek New Testament, the Nestle Elan, lists 635 references to the Old Testament in the entire book. 635. Since one verse can have more than one reference. And as we will see this morning, all four of our verses have multiple references to the Old Testament. On a side note, the best way for you to understand the book of Revelation is to know your Old Testament. Know it cold. So at the end of the Bible, here in Revelation 21, we see the restoration of the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. You see, the story of the Bible is not exactly linear. It is what we call U-shaped. U-shaped. That is, we end up back where we began. We end up right where we started, except this time better. The plot of scripture is very simple. If you can remember these four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. At the end of the story, we end up back at the beginning, except this time better than ever. The first few chapters of the Bible are paradise lost. The last two chapters of the Bible are paradise regained. So in our passage, I'd like us to see four heavenly reversals of the curses of sin. Four heavenly reversals of the curse. First, the reversal of the curse of creation. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The Apostle John starts this monumental passage by saying, then I saw. It's a repeated formula used throughout the book of Revelation, and it refers to the visions which are unfolding before John's very eyes on the Isle of Patmos. And he sees a new heavens and a new earth. But John isn't the first to hear about this. In fact, what John sees here is the very same thing that a prophet of God saw 800 years earlier. Isaiah 66, 22. The new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. Theologically speaking, this is what is known as the eternal state. This is glorification at its essence. After all the events of the end times, we are left with this, the new heavens and the new earth, which will endure eternally before the Lord. So there will be a new heaven. Well, what is this referring to? Scripture tells us of three heavens. The first heaven is the sky above us, as in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Second heavens is the galaxy, the sun, the moon, the stars, the solar system. And the third heaven, 
is the heaven of God, the abode of paradise. What Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, when he says that he was caught up to the third heaven and he heard words which is not, he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. All of it will be made new. All of it will be rejuvenated. And the third heaven will come to earth. Not only will there be a new heaven, but also a new earth. The earth as we know it now has been affected by the fall. From the beginning of the fall, God cursed creation. Genesis 3.17, God tells Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Romans 8.20 says creation was subjected to futility. But here we have a new earth. Now, in order to understand what this new earth refers to and what this means, we have to understand the word new. In Greek, there are multiple ways to say new. We'll focus on two of them. The first way to say new is new in kind because it's something that you've never had before, something you've never seen before. It's like a couple of weeks ago, if you're a kid, you're opening up new present on Christmas Day, and you open up your present and say, wow, I've got a new toy, a toy I've never had before. It's new, something you've never had before, something you've never seen before. That is not the word used for new in this passage. Instead, the word used for new in this passage is the word kainos, which means new in terms of quality. It looks like when you give your car a really good car wash and your buddy says to you, wow, it looks good as new. You had your car before, except now it looks like a new car. It's something that you've had before, except this time it's new. So while this is a new world, this is not an other world. This is a new earth, but it's something we've had before, something we've seen before. There's something familiar about this. This is, after all, a new earth. This is still the earth we're talking about. This earth that we have right here, right now, except in glorified perfection. So heaven is not some mysterious, ethereal place where we go up into the clouds and turn into angels and strum harps all day. Looney Tunes is wrong. And so is Plato, which is where we got that from. No. Heaven is a real physical place with real physical earth, as real as this place is and as real as this earth is. In heaven, we will eat and drink, just like Jesus after the resurrection. In heaven, we will walk and run and jump. Heaven will be a place of spiritual and physical bliss. The new earth will be the old earth restored, perfected, and glorified by the sovereign power of the Lord. Remember, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And on this new earth, there is no longer any sea. This is the first of seven no longer statements in Revelation 21 and 22. Seven, of course, symbolic as a number of perfection in the book of Revelation. There's no longer any sea. Well, I admit this is very difficult to understand, but it seems 
that John is not referring to a literal ocean with literal waters. Rather, the sea is a picture, an image, and it represents all that is wicked in fallen creation. Again, John is alluding to the Old Testament in this verse. Isaiah 57, verse 20, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Israelites feared the sea. They were not a seafaring people. They viewed the sea as representative, as symbolic for all that is fallen and all that is chaotic and all that is evil in creation. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no wickedness. There is only perfection. So this is the new creation. Climactic, isn't it? Indeed it is. What we are seeing here in Revelation 21.1 truly is the climax. This is the culmination. This is the final event in the process of restoration which began with the coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, he came to save his people from their sins. Yes, 100%, absolutely. But Jesus also came to restore the entire fallen created order. He came to restore all of the created order. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus came to subject all things under his feet. Colossians 2 tells us that he would be the firstborn over all creation. When Jesus came, he came to restore all of the created order. And he did so by reliving the history of the world. Jesus came to relive the history of the world. He came to bring the inauguration of the new creation. He is the progenitor of the new humanity. He is the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, Jesus came to succeed. The New Testament retells the story of the Old Testament, except where there was once failure, there is now success. Here's what I mean. Look at these parallels. At the beginning of the world, Genesis 1-2 says, the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. He hovered over the formless and void. The Spirit of God was hovering over the formless and void. The Spirit of God was hovering to create something ex nihilo, to create something out of nothing. In Luke 1, the Spirit hovered over the void and empty womb of Mary to create ex nihilo, to create something out of nothing, to create a miraculous child where there was nothing. After the spirit hovers, God says, let there be light, Genesis 1-3. After the spirit hovers, Matthew 4-16 says, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Upon them, a light dawned. After the creation in Genesis 3, Satan tempts Adam and Eve. In Matthew 4, Satan tempts Jesus. Now think more with me. Why did Jesus fast in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Why not 38 or 25 or 8? It's because Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Except where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. It all comes to a head in the Garden of Gethsemane, the ultimate contrast to the Garden of Eden. 
In the Garden of Eden, God says to the first Adam, obey me about the tree. In the Garden of Gethsemane, God says to the second Adam, obey me about the tree, except this time the tree is a cross. God says to the first Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live. God says to the second Adam, obey me about the tree and you will die. And he did. Where there was once failure, there is now success. Jesus Christ engages in the process of restoration by reliving the history of the world. And then, when Christ resurrected from the grave, he became the first fruits of the new, glorified, physical creation. 1 Corinthians 15.20 But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And when scripture says first fruits, it means there's more coming. There's more coming. The resurrection of Jesus was the first to encompass a resurrection of the entire created realm. But you know who else is a first fruit? You are. You are. You are already a new creation. Jesus has already begun the process of restoration with you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a very familiar verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Sound familiar? Sound like our passage in Revelation? You are already a new creation. But when you read this verse, I challenge you not to read it so individualistically. I challenge you to see the eschatological ramifications of this verse. This verse is not just referring to your new spiritual life. It's referring to your new spiritual life as a herald of the new creation yet to come. You, Christian, are a down payment, a first fruit of the new heavens and the new earth. Your name is written in heaven. It's as good as done. In Luke 10, Jesus tells us how to make our joy in life immovable, unshakable. Jesus tells his apostles in Luke 10, 19 through 20, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now that's a good day, right? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. We get used to saying, when you're having a bad day, think of heaven, and that will cheer you up. And that's right. Of course that's right. But here, Jesus is saying the opposite. He's saying, even when you're having a great day, don't just rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Here he says, even when you're having a great day, don't just rejoice in the gifts I've given to you. Don't just rejoice in the success of ministry. Don't just rejoice even when you're having a great day. If you rely on day-to-day -day affairs for your joy, whether good or bad, you will never have consistent joy. Brethren, 
whether you're having the worst of days and the best of days, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That is the kind of joy that will never change. The second reversal of the curse is the reversal of the curse of civilization. The reversal of the curse of civilization. Verse 2. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. The next thing that John sees after the new creation is the new city. A city implies a place of social structure. It implies people with a civil structure, with neighborhoods and communities, an organized social system. But John doesn't just see any city. He sees the holy city, literally the sacred metropolis. Holiness is the defining, distinctive feature of this city. The holy city, New Jerusalem, represents a reversal of the curse of civilization, the curse on the city. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 4, we see the immediate effects of the fall, the desecration of the image of God through the act of murder. Cain kills Abel, and then he has the audacity to ask God, am I my brother's keeper? Then God cast Cain out of his presence, and scripture tells us that Cain went out and built a city. This is the first city mentioned in scripture. The first city is the city of Cain. Look at Genesis 4, verse 17. Genesis 4, 17. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived, and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city, and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. This is the first city mentioned in scripture, the city of Cain. It's a city of violence, the city of bloodshed, the city of conflict. And to illustrate this, one of Cain's descendants in this city, Lamech, boasts of his violence. Look at verse 23, towards the end. For I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. The word wound in verse 23 means to bruise, to scratch, to scrape. I'm sorry, the word, and the word boy means small child. So literally what Lamech is saying is that if a boy scrapes me, I'll kill him. If a boy scratches me, I'll murder him. This is what this city is like. This is what the city of Cain is, the city of violence, the city of bloodshed, the city of death. This is the first city mentioned in scripture, and it is not a good start. But when God recreates the heavens and the earth, he also recreates the city. He redeems the city. He perfects the city. The first city in Genesis 4 was a city of violence. The last city in Revelation 21 is the new Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, do you know what Jerusalem means? It means city of shalom. 
city of peace. The first city is a city of conflict. The last city is a city of joy. The first city was a city of death. The last city is a city of life. And to emphasize the life-giving nature of this city, John uses the image of a wedding. A wedding. He says the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the language of consummation. The language of a wedding. The language of marriage. When Jesus Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago, he was a king seeking a bride. And he was betrothed to his church. He consumed us with his love. And on this day of Revelation 21, this day of newness, the betrothal will end in consummation. And the church inhabiting the new Jerusalem will one day be adorned in glorified perfection like a beautiful bride on her wedding day. We will be without spot or wrinkle. We will be without blemish. After thousands of years of falling short, after thousands of years of our sin, we will come like a beautiful bride on her wedding day, and Jesus Christ will make us perfect. From heaven he came and sought us to be his holy bride, With his own blood, he bought us, and for our life, he died. O Cornerstone Bible Church, we are the blood-bought bride of Christ. Now, I just want to point out that the most important aspect of any city is its people. Its people. The most important aspect of any city is its people, and it's no different here in Revelation 21. Now think about this for a moment. Heaven is communal. Perfection is communal. Perfection is social. Perfection is collective, not individual. Just like the Trinity. Three persons living in community with one another throughout all eternity within the perfect triune Godhead. Perfection is communal. In the glorified perfect state, we will exist in a community, in a city. So heaven is not just going to be you by yourself off with Jesus in some corner. It's not just going to be you and your loved ones off in some corner. No, heaven will be a city. Perfection is communal. New Jerusalem is a blow to Lone Ranger Christianity. Heaven itself knows nothing of the Lone Ranger Western individualistic mindset. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you are a city set on a hill. The church is to be a city within a city, to be an alternate city in every city, to be the holy city within the secular city, to be the city of light within the city of darkness. So I ask you this morning, are you committed to the city of God in our day, the church? Are you committed to the people of God? Are you committed to the public, corporate worship of the Lord on the Lord's day? 
Is the public corporate worship of God your priority every Lord's Day? Are you committed to the fellowship of God's people? Are you in a care group? Are you serving? Are you faithful to your care group? Are you a member of the church? It doesn't have to be this church. We support membership in any biblical church. But are you a member of a church? And if not, why not? Are you committed to the city of God in our day, the church? Heaven itself demands that we are committed to the community of God. Not just then, but now. Third, the reversal of the curse of Babel. The reversal of the curse of Babel. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now this, above all, has to be the most glorious aspect of heaven. God himself will walk with us as a man with his friend. He will dwell among us face to face. John says that the tabernacle of God is among men. This, of course, is a reference to the Old Testament tabernacle in the wilderness, the tabernacle of Exodus. Now, what's so special about this? I mean, it's the tabernacle again, right? It's hard to read those chapters in Exodus, if we're honest with ourselves, but it shouldn't be. What's so special about this tabernacle? Well, you see, in Exodus, that was the earthly tabernacle of God. This is the heavenly one. This is the tabernacle spoken of in Hebrews 8.5, which says that the earthly tabernacle of Moses was a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for God said to Moses, See that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. How did Moses know what the tabernacle was supposed to look like? He saw the heavenly pattern. He saw this. He saw the tabernacle of Revelation 21. The earthly tabernacle was nothing more than a reflection, a copy, a shadow of the tabernacle of Revelation 21. So in Revelation 21, John speaks of the heavenly tabernacle, the reality, not the shadow, the antitype, not the type, the substance, not the pattern. This is what Moses saw on that mountain thousands of years ago. This is how Moses knew that the earthly tabernacle was supposed to look like. This is the heavenly tabernacle. And this represents access into the presence of God because it dwells among men. In heaven, there is no more veil, no more separation. God himself will walk among us. He will dwell with his people. The word translated people, as you see there in verse 3, where it says, and they shall be his people, is actually the word peoples. It's plural. And they shall be his peoples. In heaven, God will gather together all of his peoples from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. 
And here is where we see the reversal of the curse of Babel. You know the story of Babel. In Genesis 11, the peoples of the earth gather together in order to make a name for themselves. They build a city towards heaven. They want to bring God down. And God does come down, of course. But he comes down to create different languages. And he causes chaos. And he scatters the people over the face of the earth. The peoples over the face of the earth. But heaven is a reversal of Babel. At Babel, the peoples build a city to bring God down. In heaven, the peoples enter the final city to lift God up. At Babel, they want to reach heaven but fail. And so they are scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. In heaven, they are brought up to heaven from all over the whole earth to bring him glory. At Babel, the people's languages cause chaos as a result of sin. In heaven, the people's languages harmonize together in a symphony of praise as a result of redemption. Heaven is a reversal of the curse of Babel. John Piper says, in response to the sin of Babel, God has divided the languages and the nations. But in the end, it magnifies the authority and power of Christ to make disciples in every language. The praise that Jesus receives from all the languages is more beautiful because of its diversity than it would have been if there were only one language and one people to sing. The sin of Babel leads to the global glory of Christ. It was all in the sovereign plan of God. Since the beginning, Babel was in the sovereign plan of God to bring about worshipers from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And that will be fulfilled in heaven. There are two things in this life that make me cry. I don't consider myself a crier, but when I think of these two things, I shed tears. Heaven and hell. When I think of people I love gnashing their teeth in the fires of hell, I weep. Thomas Watson says, thus it is in hell they would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. This word ever breaks the heart. George Whitfield used to speak with tears of the torment of people burning like a livid coal, not for an instant, not a day, but for millions upon millions of ages, at the end of which they will realize they are no closer to the end than when they first began, and they will never, ever be delivered from that place. Oh, unbeliever, you should tremble at the thought of an eternity in hell. Unbeliever, what you are experiencing right now will be the closest that you will ever get to heaven if you do not repent. Repent today. Trust Christ while there is still time. But when I think of the glories of heaven, on the other hand, I have been known on occasion to weep as well. I remember this one time, my wife Olivia and I were watching The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is 
of course, the movie version of the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And there's this one scene in the camp of the good guys where we see Aslan the lion for the first time. And Aslan, of course, represents Jesus Christ. So anyway, we were watching this movie, and I just remember there's a solitary tent sitting across atop a, a grassy knoll in the camp of the good guys. And first we see Aslan's paw, and then parts of his leg, and then parts of his mane. And finally, Aslan himself emerges from behind the veil. And at this point, I was just bawling. I was just bawling. And Olivia, this is not in the theater, by the way. And Olivia, she's watching me, not the movie, she's watching me. She says, what's wrong? And I said to her, I can't just, I just can't help but think, what will it be like when we see for the first time Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah? What will that be like? What will it be like to see for the very first time Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Master, Savior, and Friend, Jesus Christ? What will that be like? Brethren, test yourselves this morning. Everyone wants heaven. Unbelievers want heaven too. They say, of course I want heaven, so I can be with my friends and family again, or I can be rid of this illness. And of course that's true. But you know what an unbeliever will never say that a believer says? You know what makes us different? An unbeliever will never say, I want to go to heaven just so I can be with Jesus. I want to go to heaven just so I can be with God. Is that your attitude? Brethren, I ask you this morning, real honest question. If you could have heaven with all of its joys, with all of its physical pleasures, with no more sickness, no more infirmity, with the best food, with all of that and all of the glories of heaven, if you could have all of that without Jesus, what would your answer be? What should your answer be? We should answer a resounding no. I will not have heaven without Jesus. I will not have heaven without God. Because heaven without Jesus is not heaven at all. Heaven without God is not heaven at all. Martin Luther said, I would rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. Who cares about pearly gates? Who cares about golden streets? What will it be like to see for the very first time Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah? What will it be like to see those nail-pierced hands, that thorn-pierced brow, the lamb who was slain for us? What will it be like to see King of kings, Lord of lords, word incarnate, son of God and son of man? What will that be like? We who are believers here this morning should flee from the thought of a heaven without Jesus. Well, fourth and last, the last heavenly reversal of the curse of sin is the reversal of the curse of the fall, the curse of the fall itself in verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The first things refers to the former creation, tainted and marred by the fall. 
All of the words mentioned in verse 4 are a direct result of the fall. They're all allusions to Genesis chapters 3 and 4. The first time death is mentioned in the Bible, it is as a part of the fall. Genesis 2.17, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From that day you eat from it, you will surely die. The first time pain is mentioned, it is as a result of the fall. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. The first time mourning is mentioned that would have occurred is after the first death in scripture, after Cain kills Abel in Genesis 4. The first time crying is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 4.10. After Cain kills Abel, God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. But just think, oh Christian, just think. One day, hope will change to glad fruition. One day, faith will turn to sight and prayer to praise. One day, there will be no more death. One day, you will never sin again. One day, you will never experience loss or mourning or crying or pain. Christians, let this sink in. Let this settle in. Let it settle in deep. One day, you will be in heaven. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, which we just sang this morning, said this, If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Brothers and sisters, Have you lost the wonder of heaven? Have you lost the wonder of the fact that you will be in heaven one day? Have you lost the wonder? You know how you can tell that you've lost the wonder? Heaven ceases to move you. It ceases to move you mentally. It ceases to move you spiritually and emotionally. It ceases to move you to action. It has ceased to move you. So how should heaven move us? I mean, really, what does it matter that we have this heavenly city? Who cares about some far-off city in the future? How should it move us? Answer, the thought of heaven should move us to be radical, risk-taking Christians in our obedience. I want to challenge us here this morning. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge me to be radical, risk-taking Christians in our obedience because of our heavenly home. I want to challenge us to go to the hard place and do the hard thing, to stand up at work when the name of Christ is being impugned, to stand up at school when the name of Christ is being impugned, to give till it hurts, to say, I forgive you to that person and ask for forgiveness, to stand up to to your friends who are mocking Christ and to share the gospel with them even if you will lose your relationships. I want to challenge us to be radical, risk-taking Christians in our obedience to Christ. 
One of my best friends in college has been a long-term missionary to East Asia for many years now. For the sake of security, I won't mention where he ministered, but for many years he ministered in a very large country with over a billion people in it. And in this country, there's a very long wall. <laughs> Some people might call it great. And the country starts with a C, but it's not Cambodia. Anyway, so he's no longer in China. Um, he's actually ministering in Mongolia now. For the past three years, he's planted a house church there. And he lives in the capital of Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar, which happens to be the coldest capital on earth. I looked up weather.com the other day, and right now it's negative 21 degrees, and it feels like negative 34, but at least the high today is one. <laughs> and he and his wife were pregnant last year, and they were looking to deliver their baby in the winter in Mongolia, um, right about now. And I told him that most missionaries they come back to the United States to deliver their children so they can get top-notch health care in an American hospital. They, their kids can be American citizens. But he felt very strongly that God wanted him and his wife to stay in Mongolia for the delivery of their baby, of their son. And the reason he said this is because he wanted to be a testimony to the house church that he had planted. You see, in Mongolia, the broken family is the norm. The vast majority of people, well, maybe not the vast majority, but a lot of people do not know what it's like to actually have both parents. And so in his house church, not only would he and his wife and his baby be the first Christian family, for some people, it would be the first family they ever saw, period. And so he was absolutely dead set on delivering his baby in Mongolia in the winter. And I argued with him. I said, why would you risk that? Why don't you come back to America and deliver in a, an American hospital instead of a Mongolian hospital? And he said, no, we don't deliver on horseback. There are actually hospitals. He actually said that to me. <laughs> and I said, why would you risk delivering in the coldest capital on earth in the dead of winter when you could deliver in the frigid 75-degree sunny Southern California weather? And he said this to me, which rebuked my heart. He said, Risk is right. There is no such thing as risk in the way that the world defines risk. The only true risk is if we do not trust God. Either we misunderstand God's character to do good to us, or we do not trust that one day he will give us all good things in Christ. All I want to do is on that last day to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Risk is right. Risk is right. Don't take it from me. Turn with me really quick as we close to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 8. At the end, Hebrews 11, 8, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So here we have Abraham, really old, really old. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees. He hears this 
the command of God, and he sells his house, which would have been a mansion, and he moves out with his sons to go to a place he does not know where he's going to walk hundreds of miles to live in a tent. Where did Abraham get the faith to obey so radically? Look at verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for the heavenly city. Turn to Hebrews 13, verse 12. Hebrews 13, 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Jesus isn't in some safe place saying, go out there and suffer for me. Be persecuted for me. Go out there and die for me. No, Jesus went out there. He went outside the gate. He went outside the camp and suffered for us. So let us take up our cross and let us follow him outside the gate. Jesus is saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But Jesus is saying it outside the gate. Now, How on earth are we going to get the courage to suffer like that, to bear his reproach like that. Verse 14, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Brethren, heaven is our confidence. In China, in the year 1934, 28-year-old missionary John Stam and his wife Betty were being led to martyrdom by the communists. They were stripped down to their underclothes. They were made to walk in between two jeering, mocking, scoffing crowds which lined the street. In just 10 minutes' time, the sword of an imperial officer would cut off John Stam's head right before his wife's eyes. Her lips would tremble. She would fall next to her husband and be beheaded by the same sword. On their way to the execution, someone who recognized the couple asked them, where are you going? John Stam said, we are going to heaven. Brothers and sisters, we are going to heaven. So let us live like it. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, whom have we in heaven but you? And besides you, We desire nothing on earth. Lord, give us an eternal perspective. Let heaven settle in deep in reality that we will be there one day with you. And let it impact our lives for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.